Greetings. Today I'm going to be talking about something I guess I would consider incredibly sobering. Uh, just to set the stage, I'm recording in my bedroom, not at my studio. Uh, the traffic moves quite often and quite loudly down my block on 132nd in Harlem. So excuse uh, excuse me for, or excuse us, freelance kills, but uh, excuse me for any of the uh, sound quality issues. I don't, I'm not using a pop filter today. I'm just, I'm just uh, doing this raw kind of um, because I feel like that's where we're at. I felt it would be remiss to try to record something or to put out something that had to do with finance because uh, there are other things in the world worth battling against. And, uh, and overall, that's still the mission and it'll be easy to get back to because as you find out, if you've done any reading, that race in America is by and large both race, money, and validation. So today my plan is to, uh, I guess, I wanted to read something that I wrote on Medium, which got spread around a bit, but I figure for some people, they're getting hit with a lot of things to read. And I've always loved podcasts because I could, you know, not necessarily multitask, but it allows me to absorb information a different way. And, you know, if you prefer it that way, I, I, I want to make it easier to get the information that I think everybody needs. And I'm not saying I'm the definitive source. So one of the things I wanted to make very clear at the onset of all this stuff is that like disclaimer, you know, I'm one black person, one black mind, one black body, somebody with a very strong opinion about how the world works and should work. Um, somebody with a lot of knowledge about a lot of things, but not necessarily an expert at all of those same things. I understand that uh, being black, being white, being Asian, being Latino or Hispanic, being Pacific Islander, being Hawaiian, being Native American, none of these things are a monolith. The only thing that is true about this world is that we're all human beings. We're all fallible. We all have dark sides, some darker than others, some because of chemical imbalance and some because of other reasons, <laughs> but we are all humans. And I think if we can keep that in mind, it'll make the direction for which progress should propel itself with our help always in the right direction, forward and up. Anyway, I wrote a paper or an essay. I guess I wouldn't really call it a, a paper. This is sort of an op-ed. I don't want to give myself more credit than I deserve. Uh, I'm not an academic by any means. But I wrote a, uh, an essay called Black and White, the Inequality of Risk-Taking Through the Eyes of a Pandemic. So I'll read this. It's alarming yet unsurprising how many events in our lifetime draw focus on the huge divide between a black life and a white life. From decades of police brutality and wrongful deaths to the civil rights era-esque segregation in schools, you don't have to look far to see the fragmentation of two societies. There are going to be three huge truths in this essay 
that you need to be perfectly okay with if you want to continue in your case with listening. One, I'm going to use the word white and black so much it might be upsetting. Unfortunately, whatever post-racial society you fooled yourself into thinking we have isn't quite at our doorstep yet, so get used to it. Two, there's going to be zero science in this essay. Maybe a statistical reference or two, but this is largely about an observation from the eyes of one black life. Three, no matter what I say, I don't dislike white people, but I am angry, sad, and frustrated. Something's just have to be said in the spirit of a greater good and to lessen the burden of pain on the soul. Every two or three days, I spend about an hour or two hauling through and around Manhattan on my bike for exercise. I've been doing this with alternating frequency for about three or four years now. You know how you might get your best ideas in the shower? I get mine throwing myself into chaos, dodging the opening car door of a taxi or spending hours at a shooting range. I find adding friction adds the opportunity for my neural network to make connections I don't get by sitting idle and at peace. These bike rides have brought risk-taking and detached sharp focus for me during this pandemic. First, cycling can be an expensive and elite sport. I don't see very many men or women that look like me cycling. Second, during the New York City lockdown, we've had cold and bad weather days which have brought glimpses of summer days into brilliant contrast. I see humans of all races following rules, following them partially and ignoring them altogether. My unscientific thought experiment has calculated that white people have shown the most blatant disregard for our city's mandated rules. And like any other time in U.S. history, the wheels of justice trample one race while turning a blind eye to another. It begs the question, why are white people overweight in their disregard for collective safety measures versus their black compatriots? I could pontificate at length about this, but you wouldn't read it or maybe listen to it. I'm also sure some scholar out there has tackled this question or something adjacent, so I'm going to take a stab at this answer by looking at three factors less than knee-deep. The first factor, the inescapable, embedded nature of blackness as a collective. Being black in America can be considered a chronic disease. Black is beautiful, but societally, on the planes of past and present, it has proven to be a disease that whiteness has tried to abolish, extinguish, or control since the day we were taken off those ships. Our original American condition, slavery, has had a ripple effect on the amount of progress we've been able to achieve in the free world, quote-unquote. Here's the part where I introduce some statistics to set the table. Nearly 50% of students of color are in high-poverty schools. That statistic is less than 10% for white students. Black households have only 10 cents in wealth for every dollar held by white households. In 2016, the median wealth of non-Hispanic white households was $171,000. That's 10 times the wealth of black households at $17,100, a larger gap than in 2007. Looking at health outcomes, 46% of maternal deaths of African-American women could have been prevented versus 33% for white women. Some areas of the U.S. are worse than sub-Saharan Africa. In 2005, 39% of African-American children did not live with their biological father, and 28% of African-American children did not live with any father representative, compared 
to 15% of white children who were without a father representative. This is one of those points, I'm, I'm breaking away from the essay, this is one of those points where so many white Christians and white people alike talk about self-determination and choice in terms of whether or not African Americans make the right decisions with their lives. But I won't dwell on that. More than 60% of the people in prison today are people of color. Black men are six times as likely to be incarcerated as white men. For black men in their 30s, about one in 12, one in every 12 is in prison or jail on any given day. I'm letting that sink in. Sorry for the pause. <laughs> but I, I mean, it's just, every time I read this, it's just incredible. I haven't even started editorializing this and I feel like it gets the point across. It's gross. Have we made progress? Sure. Are we anywhere close to some statistical measure of equality? No fucking way. To be black in America doesn't put you at a disadvantage. It puts you at risk. Self-determination is well and good, but we're playing against house odds. I was born to two loving parents and spent my childhood and teenage years living in a white suburb in Georgia. My schools were on average split evenly between white and blacks, or at least that's how I felt them to be. I still managed to find my way into trouble. My sister was a victim of an attempted murder. Yes, she made poor decisions, but still. And all three of my siblings have sat in a jail cell. My father didn't know his biological father growing up and had to defend his mother from the beatings of suitors when he was a child. Both my parents were raised in poverty. There aren't, these aren't issues that are completely foreign to white families, but we sure do have to deal with them more often and disproportionately. My point is that risk for us has been the opposite of subtle. This has been true since we were old enough to understand words. Did you know some of our mothers and fathers teach us how to interact with police officers even when we're the ones calling for help? All that self-worth and self-value white kids get from having two parents in the home and computers and iPads in the classroom. Imagine what your self-worth looks like when you're a kid that gets the bulk of his nutrition from a school that can't even provide books to an entire classroom. By the time we're ready to break a rule like ignoring face masks during a quarantine or selling drugs, it's because we've either become desperate or rebellious from the exhaustion of disadvantage and disenfranchisement. Black risk is inherently a collective experience, while white risk is as independent and individual as their freedom of choice. It's no wonder you call on self-determination so often when rebelling and rebuking the calls for blackness asking for equality. Anyway, factor two, the red carpet of privilege and elitism. The easiest way I can illustrate this is by linking you to Sean King's Instagram post. Also, I'm going to make a big caveat. I don't necessarily support Sean King or the way he practices his mm, propagandizing, awareness raising, whatever you want to call it. But he happens to have pictures when I need them. And so anyway, but the, the easiest way I can illustrate this is by linking you to Sean King's Instagram post about the enforcement of quarantine in white and black concentrated neighborhoods. And I link to three different pictures. And if you haven't seen them, uh, there are basically uh, a Latino or Hispanic cop sitting on the 
the neck or the head of a, of a black body uh, during a quarantine bust versus cops passing out face mask and, um, and I guess not even warnings to white people frolicking and laying in the park um, during this quarantine. Long story short, black neighborhoods actually have enforcement, an aggressive kind. And white neighborhoods have free handouts and not even so much as a warning issued. Or for a moment, picture all the rest of white violent offenders that you can remember and compare that to your recent memories of black nonviolent suspect arrest. Remember when that white guy, doesn't, he doesn't deserve a name, but because I need to give you the evidence so you can actually believe what I'm saying, Dylan Roof shot up a church of peaceful black elders and they took him out for Burger King before booking him. In Minneapolis, George Floyd, a name you definitely need to remember because that's why you're dealing with what you're dealing with right now, a black man was only suspected of passing a counterfeit bill, $20 by the way, and they put a knee on his throat and killed him. I've illustrated much of this point with the statistics above or before, but to hammer at home, white is the default. And I'm going to insert a caveat here because I've talked about this on Instagram. When your race only makes up 12 to 15% of a 300, I don't call it 25 million person population, of course it's the default. I'm not pointing blame at the fact that default, that white has become a default by default. (laughs) I'll only be pointing blame if you don't do everything in your power to reverse the fact that a democracy calls for equal rights, equal privilege, equal aspiration, equal goal setting, equal everything for the minority and the majority alike. And that's where we failed by being blind to the fact that white as a, as a default isn't the problem as so much as, duh, there's 70% of you here. <laughs> it is a problem when you let that defaultness crush and savage an entire race just because you can't pay attention. Getting back to the essay. I understand that white people have to deal with poverty and disadvantages too, but racism for blacks is overt and institutional. Racism is literally in any direction you look and where you can't see it. You can be a down on your luck, quote unquote, white, and still expect to not get shot in your back or have an entire magazine of bullets emptied into your chest when reaching for your wallet to provide ID. You can march the halls of your city government with an AR-15 strapped to your back, with vitriol and spittle escaping your mouth, but we can't. The bar isn't that high. White wealth is such that you can literally segregate yourself from an entire race without even having to try that hard. I have this argument about the American school system all the time. The truth is that it that any parent would want their kid to go to the best school possible, especially because education and credentialing has proven to be a massive predictor of future income potential. The chain reaction goes something like this. A white family has a child and wants them to go to the best schools, the best education. In order to raise their child, they decide to buy a home. They look for schools with a good, they look for areas with schools that are within good school districts. These schools are already concentrated in, you guessed it, white-leaning demographic zones. 
They may also decide to put their kids in private school if they have enough wealth. Public schools are then funded by property taxes. And that's not a sequential thing. I, I just mean to say public schools are funded by property taxes. So when the white family moves to a better school district, they take their funding with them. The schools in that district have a slow leak that will eventually leave them with less and less resources. This works the same for the family that decides to stay put, but puts their kid in private school. Yes, their property taxes will go to those public schools, but their time and energy, their engagement in the school, the exposure in that community, it'll all be transferred to another school. Again, depriving an already suffering school from positive engagement and exposure and participation in that community, politically, charitably, relatably. And then the cycle repeats itself over and over until scores of school districts, especially in urban settings, are segregated and only serve students of color with limited resources among a slew of other issues. As I'm typing this, I'm realizing it's even worse than that. Lower income urban areas in some of our most liberal American cities roll out the red carpet for white people to move in and revitalize our neighborhoods. Our neighborhoods. Academically, this is called gentrification. On the streets, this is called stealing. White people are completely fine settling in class C neighborhoods while they're single or without children. It gives them a chance to save money or on seemingly exploitive rents and tell stories about their new neighborhoods as if they were Christopher Columbus themselves. They rent and buy up homes in neighborhoods where they never let their kids go to school. Slowly, rents and market prices for homes go up, at least in places where they can't keep that down with rent control and all the other mechanisms. Developers start lobbying for tax subsidies and buying inhabitants out of their homes and pricing them out or whatever ways or mechanisms they use to push people out. And you know, white people aren't going to stay in class C neighborhoods forever, especially not if it doesn't have amenities. The pillars of a solid gentrification effort, Whole Foods, Star Food, Starbucks, a millennial artisanal restaurant upstart, and the promise of future luxury apartment construction. Nobody would have ever thought or maybe they just don't care, that in our food deserted neighborhoods that we would want a Whole Foods or a Starbucks or even the opportunity to build our own businesses to serve our own crumbling neighborhoods. We're always ignored and left behind, pushed out and forgotten. Black people start the race a mile behind blindfolded and without shoes. We have to work two to three times harder to prove ourselves. We have to study two to three times more to catch up academically. We're paid the most money in areas where we can entertain white people. We have to be two to three times more polite at a traffic stop if we want to protect our lives and our freedom. When white children die in a school shooting, it becomes national news and people are motivated into banning an entire class of weapon, AR-15, a ban that wouldn't even make a shred of difference. Meanwhile, black children have a choice of gangs or starvation, they have to walk through metal detectors in school, and a black death rarely registers on the national scale. I mean, until recently. Your privilege and your advantages, they start earlier than you'll ever know or be able to appreciate. They start at conception, and they continue to snowball until, well, forever. It's compound interest, 
your whiteness is bankable. And it keeps being repaid and repaid over and over again. I'm not for a minute saying the solution is to rebuke the life your parents gave you. In some cases, maybe I am. But for the majority of you, I'm just saying we all need to change our perceptions of our own life and success. Much of what we earn and achieve in this life will be a matter of luck and zip code. Your hard work and intelligence matters, but don't give it more weight than it deserves. White people freed us from slavery after they enslaved us and then enslaved us again through sharecropping. White people tossed us in prison for drug crimes and then took the marijuana industry from us, legalized it, profited from it, and left us in prison. When you walk through life with institutional protection, it's no wonder risk isn't met with the same caution or respect. Factor three, what white won't solve, green will. Money talks and it always has. The economics of subjugation are incredibly clear from slavery to sharecropping to this new system of black institutionalized oppression. On occasion, I think back to some super generic exchanges I've had as a teenager or college student. White kids get into some fairly serious trouble, then returns to school as if everything is normal. I always That was always a head scratcher to me. Well, not a head scratcher, but you get the... Uh, the analogy. The subtext here is that his parents or her parents had money. <laughs> Funny enough, I watch a lot of Law and Order, uh, a lot of um, you know Chicago PD, NYPD, Blue, all, all those shows, and they actually do highlight this. And it's usually highlighted as politician has a kid that drives drunk all the time and kills people, and they get him out of trouble, or you know, um, hedge fund guy rapes, uh, you know, a girl or something, but uses money to block the, the, the political system, uh, the, the, the justice system, et cetera, et cetera, on and on. You know these examples. They put them right in front of you on TV. I've watched them for years and thought nothing of them. Well, I've thought something of them, but I haven't really internalized them. But they're right in front of our face. And we look at TV and we go, oh, that's probably not how it actually is, right? I mean, you got to trust the system a little bit. But in many ways, that is actually how the system works. Anyway, getting back to the essay again. For the uninitiated, the inference here is that the parents could afford a good attorney or to pay off whoever was harmed by their child's actions. Whether those stories were ever accurate or not, the underlying assumptive thought here couldn't be more applicable to the white life. Do you want to live in a cheaper neighborhood but want your kid to have a luxury education? The answer is money. Does your child need tutoring or test prep? You want your child to get into a school they're not qualified to attend? Money. You want to eat clean and only put organic ingredients into your body? Money. Were you arrested for a crime and don't want to sit in jail until your court date? Money. This list can go on in perpetuity. Whiteness is the default in this country. History has also provided white people with an incredible head start. Moreover, the laws and the policies too, like financial lending practices, of the land are skewed to disproportionately affect people of color and low income more than those of elite standing. And the only currency that usually helps any human cut through red tape and struggle is owned by white people at a 10 to 1 ratio. 
This sends me the message as a black man that even as black people become the majority in the U.S., it won't matter because control is actually green when it's all said and done. Being poor is incredibly expensive. The poor must exchange an entire day's worth of hours for minimum wage, time. And when something bad happens, the poor must exchange time, which they don't have, to apply for a resolution, which they can't fucking afford. White wealth allows them to use money to protect their time, removing themselves from the hamster wheel. Compound interest works for advantages, in parentheses, whites, and disadvantages, in parentheses, blacks, alike. If skin color isn't a legal way to segregate us, money is the next best means to that end. <laughs> a friend, uh, my <laughs> a friend and, uh, and somebody that works for me called out this next part is my TLDR. Uh, TLDR, for those of you who are, don't know, means too long, didn't read. And he texts me and he was like, uh, your TLDR <laughs> is as long as your essay. So it is, uh, but it does do, a, a, I think, a tidy job of summing up what I'm trying to say. Whiteness is a protected class while blackness is a disease. When a race spends its entire existence as a taker, giving itself the ability to set the rules for those it conquers, it becomes hard to see that there is no disconnect between whiteness and biological humanity, i.e., we are all the same. Whiteness moves through life in a protected bubble, picking and choosing what belongs in its default orbit as it amasses more wealth and assets and pretends that its riches are the result of pure intelligence and ingenuity. The ego swells and, the, and privilege prevents the truth from being visible. Then, one day during a pandemic, whiteness is asked to do something for the collective good. But having command over their lives like no other race in America, they get the free will to decide what priority matters to them more. And a huge majority of them raise their hand and say, me, me, I matter. So I'm going to do what I believe. They view risk-taking as singular instead of collective, something as black people we don't have a luxury of believing or feeling or acting upon just like they view their self-determined pursuit of asset-grabbing as biographical in nature instead of the reality of the collective endeavor. All these startups, Ubers and Uber Lights and Uber-like companies, had to underpay and disadvantage a lot of people, mostly brown, black, yellow, and poor white people, to... to earn the valuations and the pile of cash that they've chosen to just burn for the pursuit of innovation and asset grabbing. This is modern slavery. There is a reason, even foolishly, that black people take care of their entourage and their family when success strikes. Immigrants do this too, by the way. While white people live in mansions that are practically empty, Risk-taking means different things to us. We live with it daily, and it's not our decision most of the time. When a black person makes a choice to skip the face mask or to sit on his apartment stoop out front of his building, it could be a forfeiture of life even before he is even infected or even thinks about being infected by the coronavirus. A white person just gets to make a choice, no strings attached. Clustering in parks with people that they haven't even been in quarantine with and skipping face masks and gloves because, hey, why not? 
That's just the nature of risk in a black and white America.